America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Cut and drop, save the world. Welcome back, Roderick Makem here. Uh, I missed last week, so just saying hello to everyone. I was in uh, I was in no state to do a podcast last week, and let's just leave it at that. And I'm Pat Brown, your faithful, ever-present host. <laughs> uh, it's the week ending 28 March 2015, and I'll be honest from the outset. Today we have three dark topics. Yeah. They are fascinating, but they are dark. They're interesting, but my God, uh, we were just having a chat about it now. Um, just before we started recording, and like a collective shudder. Yeah, uh, and you'll see what we mean. So the first topic we're going to talk about, um, the what's been in the headlines a lot this week, the most sensational news is the, uh, the appearance of the murder-suicide um, German Air Wings pilot. Yep. Secondly, we're going to be talking about the um, increasing chaos in the Middle East with the uh, Yemeni situation. Um, and finally, we're going to talk about a fascinating but uh, shiver-inspiring case um, involved in the alleged uh, existence of very powerful pedophile rings in the uh, the halls of power in the UK. Yeah, and basically the police just covering it up for decades. Yeah, very, very twisted stuff. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, I think we should just couch everything with allegedly, not that anyone cares what we think. Um, so let's start out with the pilot, man. Yeah. So um, I, I doubt that there's anyone listening to uh, to this podcast who hasn't uh, already uh, heard the details of this one. But um, a quick recap anyway. Um, a German pilot, uh, 27 years old, Andreas Lubitz, Lubitz, how do you pronounce his second name? Um, uh, during the week seems to have... Uh, deliberately flown a plane with 149 other people on board into a mountain in the uh, in France. Yep. Um, a flight from Barcelona back to Dusseldorf, I believe. Or from Dusseldorf to Barcelona? Uh, I, I think one of the two. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, on the, the first day, I wasn't really sure... Uh, what had happened was this a, a tragic accident and then throughout the week as more and more information came to light um, the more it seems uh, that he just uh, murdered a whole bunch of people and himself um, yeah I mean it seems quite incontrovertible in the sense that um, first of all the way that the door was locked on the other pilot was only possible with a concerted effort to do that from the inside. Yeah. That he also um, used the instruments in a concerted way to take the plane down into a mountain. And yeah. third of all, that the sound of his breathing um, was audible on the black box recording, which would indicate that there were no health problems. It yeah. was even... Um, even normal breathing, yeah. and he was just silent as the other pilot begged to try and get into the cockpit. Which yeah. is pretty, it's pretty chilling uh, stuff. And that, well, there was a thing about disabling the uh, um, keypad. Um, yeah, yeah. So disabling the doors keypad so that the code from outside could not be used, which presumably is a measure that they have to stop people being held hostage by terrorists outside and then using the code. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the other uh, important thing is that. This is, it's not a policy that there need to be two people in the cockpit at the same time in Europe. It is in the United States mm. that um, if one pilot leaves the cockpit, then another member of the crew actually has to be in the cockpit. Yeah. And so there are now proposals uh, in Europe about having at least two people in the cockpit at all times. Yeah, I think a Canadian airline, which didn't have it previously, um, has introduced that policy this week. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so... I suppose, like, the really interesting thing that comes out of this, not to dwell on the kind of ghoulish details of this one, is yeah. what kinds of jobs... Um, oh, it's probably also worth mentioning, the details seem to be emerging that there was a mental illness of some description on behalf of this pilot. The hospital has denied that he was being diagnosed with depression, but it was a psychiatric illness of some description. He had been declared unfit for work by doctors, although he had not informed his employer of the existence of his condition. Um, and so we were talking about depression earlier on, but I think more broadly speaking, yeah. psychiatric illness. And like what jobs um, should you be ruled out of when you uh, 
uh, have a psychiatric illness. Yeah, um, uh, and it's a, uh, it's a very really difficult thing to uh, to try and draw a line around because obviously there are so many types of mental illnesses um, and so many uh, affect so many people so many different ways. Each particular illness, um, and I think with depression in particular. Um, for me, I don't think that you can uh, say to someone who has uh, who's come down with uh, with depression, okay, you can't do your job now. Um, uh, and I mean, the the reason I say that is because I mean, for the last decade or so, in terms of um, trying in what what uh, societies have been trying to do. Um, to combat depression is remove the stigma from it, um, and I think that if if there was a hard and fast rule saying, oh, if you have got depression um, and you're a pilot or you're uh, you know some other sort of job where um, conceivably you have people's life in your hands and you make that known to your employer and you lose your job, really all that's going to do is um, firstly make the depression a lot worse and you. Uh, risking um, the suicide, but um, secondly, I think makes it much less likely mm. uh, that the person is going to seek help in the first place. They're not going to get diagnosed. They're not going to. They're not going to risk letting their employers know about it. Um, and I think, in a, in a way, it makes it even more likely of a tragedy occurring. Okay. Um, Can I propose? You know, I'm always looking for general principles. Okay, as you know. Yes. Um, I'm perhaps a little less pragmatic than you in that respect. And if we take this kind of to the furthest degree possible, or the most extreme case, how about the guy who's got his finger on the nuclear trigger? Do you want him psychologically evaluated? Uh, yeah. Would you allow for him to continue in his job if he was depressed? Uh, yep. Yeah? Yeah. But... With a proviso, yeah. Like, if someone has been diagnosed with uh, depression, there are there is treatment available. Yes, there is. Um, yeah. And well, I've although I might add that some of those treatments actually increase the chances of suicide. Yeah, ironically. Um, but uh, but just in um, you know in the course of uh, my journalistic career, yeah. um, I've interviewed uh, I've interviewed a, a couple of people, um, really long in depth interviews about their struggles with depression. Um, and how they've been able to get over it with um, with uh, appropriate treatment yeah. um, and support of their families and and uh, and everything else. Yeah. Um, uh, and having uh, having spoken to these guys, um, if someone has been uh, if someone has died, uh, you know, clinically depressed, um, but they're getting the right treatment uh, and they're seeking help, yeah, um, I wouldn't have a problem with them. Continuing their job if they had their, you know, finger on a button, they might, uh, they might choose just to take some time off work. I, um, if I was trying to put myself in their shoes, I might think, uh, I'll, um, I might just take some leave for a while and and uh, go through this. Um, I like the idea of compulsory leave. That's essentially gardening leave. Yeah. Where you get paid your full salary. So there's a certain class of jobs where there's just an acknowledgement. I'm not sure if you can all hear that, uh, that siren, but uh, apologies for that. There's a certain class of jobs where you can do so much damage to large numbers of people um, with very little effort that those, those jobs just as part of it are that you need to be psychologically evaluated. If you don't satisfy the criteria, then you are... Uh, unable to do that job, but there's a very healthy golden par parachute for you, if that's the case. Yeah. I can imagine a world where that gets abused, but I think it's a, a price that society generally should be okay with paying. Um, so I would say the guy with his finger on the, on the nuclear trigger, uh, people who are flying commercial airliners with hundreds of people on board, what other jobs are there where you can, like, literally with the press of a button do just tons of damage to other people? I mean, I don't like the idea of... General? Yeah. I mean, I don't like the idea of people in the military um, who have access to weapons. 
being uh, able to continue in their roles, especially if they've got access to large weapons. Um, although the people who suffer as a result of that tend not to be, quote, our people. I mean, you could argue that every soldier in a war zone, or almost every soldier in a war zone, to some extent, is suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome yeah. and is wielding a gun against a foreign population while they're suffering from that. So, I mean, that actually really, I suppose, puts the lie to the idea of a clean army. Not that we've uh, been against that idea, but, I mean, are there, does anything else spring to mind? So, I mean, you, like, the weird thing is you can actually make an argument that a school bus driver... He can take a, a bus into a into a river. Yeah. Um, do we have to worry about that? Uh, and the thing is, when you're getting down to that level, yeah. there's no golden parachute for a bus driver. Um, no, there's not. No. No. That's a tricky one. I think the thing with the airline, though... Well, yeah, I mean, you can't have two people in the, quote, cockpit of a bus yeah. full of school children, can you? Yeah. Like you can with the uh, with the pilot, you know, if you if if, uh, if a co-pilot leaves and another crew member comes in, uh, you know, this guy probably doesn't uh, crash this plane into the Alps. Um, so I mean, how much of this, I suppose, is really a phenomenon where our general apprehension about flying in a metal tube in the air is sort of. It, clouding it, our, it's clouding our analysis. rationality yeah. on this point. Or my rationality, rather, because you're okay with the pilot. I feel pretty apprehensive about the idea of a depressed pilot, especially if they're on medications, because those medications have been shown in many cases to actually increase the risks of suicide. So, yeah, I, I, mean, I worry about yeah. that. Um, I, think that, I think there is an element of that. Um, I can't remember the exact uh, statistics, but I saw something during the week where... Uh, it was basically showing that the incidence of um, uh, air travel tragedies has been decreased substantially over the past 40 years, yeah. um, but the media coverage of each one gets more. Um, and the, But that and actually so, is a direct correlation. Yeah, that's something that becomes more rare. Yeah, uh, it becomes, it becomes more, more, more notable. Um but the more media coverage something gets, uh, the more people are apprehensive about it. Yeah. Uh, like the more people get nervous about it. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out as we're having this whole discussion. Um, we don't actually know for sure at this point that the reason this guy crashed the plane into the side of the mountain had anything to do with him being depressed or any other mental illness. Um, well, it seems evident now that there's a psychiatric condition um, and yes, we are talking about depression, and it seems actually that depression was not the issue, mm. according to the hospital, at least so far as Saturday morning yeah. is concerned. But yeah, there's a lot we don't know about this one yet. So these are just, we're t having was a general discussion about, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, no other jobs really spring to mind where someone can do just so much damage to so many people um, with very little in the way of effort. Because... We were also discussing this before. I suppose, you know, if you're a truck driver, you know, driving around a massive tanker full of uh, gas or fuel, yeah. you could crash that into a building yes, you and could. kill hundreds. You could. Um, the thing is, though, that there's this sort of particular array of circumstances here where someone can shut a door yeah. and feel isolated from all of the humans that happen to be sitting in the back of his suicide missile. And we were talking about like the psychology of the person who does this kind of thing. Yeah, and it's, we're, we're, it's we were saying to get your mind around it. they're not the kind of person, at least intuitively, that you would worry about stalking the halls of a school with an automatic rifle. Yeah, they're not going to do that. But in in essence, they're but that's in essence what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. like they they take they're, they're killing a whole bunch of people as they go down themselves. But there's a certain detachment yeah. allowed in this situation that's rare. Because even someone in a war zone who points a rifle or, a, or an artillery piece at somewhere, I mean, there's this kind of direct causality between where you... I mean, it's almost as if in this case, the deaths of all of the people sitting behind you are like a kind of a byproduct that you're recklessly indifferent to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it is murder. There's no question that he's culpable for murder. 
but it is less direct than pointing a gun at someone. It's less direct, but I'm not sure reckless. I, I wouldn't put it at the level of reckless, and obviously I'm not in this guy's mind. Um, but just the sheer level of premeditation involved, mm. he, I, I can't help but think it's, I, like he, he wanted to We were talking about kill this as, as a bid for notoriety, yeah. which and is actually not that far removed from the schoolyard massacre. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it's people who want to leave their mark. They want their name to be known. Yeah, um, but I feel that it's substantively different. It, it, I think it's uh, it's on the same spectrum. Yeah. There is a difference to it. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that he killed these people recklessly or indifferently. Um, I think he wanted to bring them down too. Uh, in I some agree. Way. Yeah, probably reckless indifference is not the right word for it because it's just the inevitable outcome of doing the act. Yeah. Which is not reckless, because reckless, I suppose, implies the idea that it's not necessarily an outcome. Yeah. And some of the little... It's a giant yeah. risk. I mean, in this case, it's virtually assured. So, yeah, I think you're right to call that. Like, recklessly is probably not the right way to put it. But there's a kind of, a, like, there is a detachment from the consequences. Yeah, it's definitely more detached than, you know, going postal with a semi-automatic. Yeah. Um, and so I think maybe there is this kind of weird desire for notoriety, a weird desire to go out with a bang, take people with. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of hard to put yourself in the head of a guy who does that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I'm not sure we have any further insights to add on that one. <laughs> If anyone's got any ideas on this, by the way, about like what motivates a person in that respect, and I was saying to you before, there was this case in Bondi Junction in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Where there was this um, a chap who jumped off the top balcony in an atrium in a shopping centre and landed on a table in front of a lady in a food court a few stories below. Yeah. And he was a kind of a guy who chose a very public forum for his suicide. And I don't think that in that case he was out to kill someone by landing on them, no. but he could well have if he had landed on yeah. someone. And well, I he, wonder, like, again, this is on the same spectrum. Yeah, it's like the, the on that spectrum about as low as you could you could get. Like, didn't, not in that he uh, wanted to I would really think, take anyone with him, yeah. but he wanted his suicide to be, no, like he wanted people he to... Wanted he wanted the notoriety. Yeah, exactly. He wanted witnesses... And this is a case where I would feel comfortable having considered it using the term reckless indifference. Yeah. By no means was it an assured outcome that he would kill someone, but he didn't particularly care if he happened to. Mm -hmm. And so uh, perhaps we put this on the spectrum of like, so you put the kind of the guy with the rifle in the school halls right on the end. You got the bloke in the plane who has an assured but detached kind of connection with yeah. deaths. And then you have this guy who's recklessly indifferent. I think we just sketched out a, a reasonable sort of array of crazy there. Yeah. Yeah, okay, let's leave it on that one. <laughs> now on to uh, extra crazy Middle East. Yeah. Now, we've been saying for a while... We have. ...that uh, the West should really just wash its fucking hands of the Middle East and let them sort their own shit out because there's no upside to Western countries being there. Um and a couple of the things in the news this week really just sort of brought that home. Um, firstly, Saudi Arabia um, conducting airstrikes in Yemen. Um, and secondly, the uh, what's going on in Tikrit. Um, do you want to cover some? So I'll do the Yemen bit, mate. No um, basically, you have a segment of the population in Yemen called the Houthis, who are uh, basically Shiites, yeah. who kicked out of Saudi Arabian supported uh, Sunni leader uh, from the uh, government and took over the public utilities. Um, and now the Saudis are bombing them because they consider that they are a kind of uh, proxy for Iran. Yeah. Um, although it is generally acknowledged that they are not controlled by Iran in the way that you would say Hezbollah are. In Lebanon, yeah. So that's not good. Uh, and on that uh, that point about connections to Iran, um, sort of dovetails nicely with what's happening um, in the uh, 
ongoing struggle with ISIS at the moment, um, in that there are Iranian-backed ground troops. Uh, I've heard them, you know, referred to as militias, whatever. Um, uh, basically fighting against ISIS in places like Tikrit. Um, and what's interesting there is that these ground troops are being supported by uh, US airstrikes. Yeah. So on the one hand, you have the US supporting Iranian-backed ground troops uh, against ISIS, while at the same time... Um, they are actually supporting the Saudi... Logistically, they're supporting yeah. the Saudi government's bombing raids against Shia in Yemen. Yeah, who are... Iranian-backed. Iranian-backed. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, I would suggest that if you find yourself in a... <laughs> shitstorm, I'm trying to think of a better word for it, where you're on both sides at once, or backing both sides, mm. um, you should probably just get the fuck out because it's it just can't end well. No, it can't, especially when you consider that the Egyptians and United Arab Emirates are also bombing Libya yeah, um, because they're worried about various militias there. And Syria is a complete uh, disaster. Um, Lebanon is unstable. Um, there just really seems to be no part of the Middle East right now that isn't in serious trouble. Yeah. And it cannot get better from here, I don't think. I think it, has, it basically will get much worse before it does get better. Yeah. And um, uh, on the one hand, um, I, uh, you know, it's not... Well, nice is a terrible word. It's more of a positive than a negative for me to see... Um, Middle Eastern countries starting to take um, more of a uh, leading role in, you know, uh, combating the uh, the problems on the ground there. Mm. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you just look at it and go, "My God, this is this is getting worse." Yeah, um, it's also worth keeping in mind that America is racing towards a negotiations deadline with Iran on the nuclear issue. Yeah. So, just on so many, there are so many layers yeah. of oh, potential we've violence. Already, yeah. And we've, we've already spoken about how um, there seems to be a substantial uh, part of right-wing America who just wants another war with Iran. Um, mm. uh, you know, that shit, that's going to improve things. Um, so, with this many pieces moving around, yeah. herky-jerkily, with, um, you know carrying weapons, killing people, I just I think it's going to get much worse. Um, and uh, America should probably just stick out of the place and guard the waterways. Yeah. I mean, that's basically, like, America should do what superpowers are supposed to do, which is, to the extent that they're able, guard on the margins the, uh, the waterways and allow for the rest of the world to continue to do what they do around the trouble spot and let the trouble spot burn itself out. Splendid isolation. And that was the British. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> the hard. British policy in the late eighteen uh, hundreds. It's 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 hard to um, say that. Like I don't say that lightly because I've lived in the Middle East. There are a lot of nice people there. Lots of people suffer unnecessarily when these kinds of things are going on. Mm -hmm. Women, children, but there's just. I mean, you cannot make people be peaceful, and they seem to really want to have it out. Yeah, and I think in many ways Western intervention at any level. Uh, like it is, it, it's not helping. It's making it worse. Well, the thing, and is, especially when it's on both sides. Like if you're if you're opposing Iran in Yemen and supporting Iran in uh, Iraq, you, yeah, you're not helping. I think America made things significantly worse by taking real initiative in Iraq and. Damaging the status quo that existed in the Middle East. Hmm. That said, if America literally threw up its hands and withdrew all of its forces right now yeah. from all of the Middle East, I actually think that would make things worse. And so it's a tricky situation where I think some involvement is warranted, but it should be passed and very, very, very carefully doled out. 
such that it is as non-interventionist as possible and the upsides in terms of stability are as much as possible. Because I really do think that things would get worse if America left and the Saudis felt less uh, less um, secure. Uh, secure than they do right now. I think they'd be more aggressive if America wasn't around to back them. That's true. But if it was aggression, say, directed towards ISIS... I'm not sure that would necessarily be, because, I mean, ISIS is a threat to Saudi Arabia. Um, they are to some extent, but what Saudi Arabia is worried about is annoying the oft-quoted or the oft-mentioned Arab street. Yeah, exactly. By fighting against fellow Sunnis. But if uh, if there was um, if they were starting to feel more threatened uh, militarily mm. by ISIS... Mm. Um, because there's no... It's a very tricky balancing act for the Saudi royal family because they have a strata of religious nutbags underneath them. Yeah. That in many cases are probably quite okay with what ISIS is up to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they rely on that religious establishment to give them legitimacy for yeah. rule. So I don't think there's a vast um, jump you have to make from no. the radical Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia to no. what's going on with ISIS at all. Definitely not. Um, and the signals of that have been very clear. I mean, ultimately, the 9-11 hijackers were, for the most part, Saudi. Yeah, yeah. Osama bin Laden, Saudi. So there seems to be this really, really, like, difficult task of threading the needle so far as Saudi Arabia is concerned. But um, what they're, they're not worried about is putting off people or critical constituents offside by bombing Shia. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what... Um, I mean, you mentioned it before, and I think it's worth mentioning on the podcast that, you know, in essence, as complicated as it all sounds with, you know, all the various countries and factions and militias and uh, shifting alliances and whatever, you can more or less narrow it down to a continuation of centuries-old conflict between Sunni and Shia. Through the lens of... Through the lands of nation states. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think so. And it really brings it home this, uh, you know, the fact that the Sunnis are happy to go and um, fight uh, to airstrike against the uh, the Shiites in in Yemen. But they're just like ignoring the uh, Sunni ISIS atrocities north of them. It seems Um, that no matter how complex the situation is, no matter how many layers of violence there are, the only rule that holds true is that that sectarian divide. And, I mean, in certain instances, that sectarian divide can do strange things. Like in, there are actually weird instances of the Sunni and Shia um, collaborating in Lebanon. Yeah? Yeah. But that's because it's such a granular conflict and there are so many different militias. Uh, you know, I mean, and there are instances again of Sunnis and Shia collaborating in Iraq against ISIS. Like, but generally yeah. speaking, it's the best rule that holds true. <laughs> if you're Sunni, you're going to be inclined to be wanting to kill Shia and vice versa. What a fucking mess! Yeah, that's really the best way to describe what it. What a fucking mess! Yeah, ugh, ugh. And the best thing to do with a mess is fucking wash your hands of it. Yeah. If it's not your mess... With me- limits, though. Yeah. If it's not your mess... Well, the problem is as well. Well, historically, it, is, it is partly, yeah. It's 100% Brits who drew lines on maps that didn't make sense 50-odd yeah. years ago, 60 now. So, And then America getting uh, invading Iraq. Uh, 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, okay, so it is partly our mess. Yeah, I mean, it is partly America's mess. I mean, Australia, I suppose, gave them a certain amount of legitimacy. But I feel like I don't want, um, you know, to the extent that we have control, like voting for whether or not Australian troops should be anywhere, I don't want it. No. All right, so our third incredibly dark topic... Yeah. The UK or the alleged pedophile ring in the halls of power um, of the UK government. Jesus fucking Christ, man. Yeah, it's Um, Just a quick thing from The Guardian here. Um, Independent uh, Police Complaints Commission has confirmed it is looking at 17 allegations of police cover-up in relation to child sex sex offences 
over a 30-year period examining claims police dropped investigations into this abuse uh, committed by MPs, judges, celebrities, police, actors and religious figures. And there are policemen on the record saying that um, for national security considerations, investigations were dropped that involved royal family members or uh, I think yeah. royal family member. Yeah, I think it's in the singular. Yeah, um, it, it was sort of involved in one of these uh, investigations and MPs. Yeah, and it was dropped because uh, it would damage national security. Yeah, and there's furthermore, there's a credible story from the newspaper editor who contends that um, he was threatened by MPs in relation to documents he'd been given by another MP that would indicate this pedophile ring was in operation and that the next day the special branch, like the anti-terror unit of the um, UK government, uh, basically kicked his door in and took the information away from him that he'd been given. Yeah. So... There's a lot of smoke here. Yeah. I really doubt that there's no fire. Yeah. That's at a certain point. Yeah. You've just got to say there's... Just too much. There's too much. Um, and I mean, shit, talk about lowering the bar for my expectations of humanity. Yeah. And it's connected with Jimmy Savile. Yeah. That lunatic entertainer who molested like it was in the hundreds of people over decades without any kind of accountability. He died before there was any accountability. Um, And so it seems just eminently possible that there were these people who were just like, just cutting a chaotic swathe of like, uh, of destruction through lots of people's lives. Yeah. Um, That were never held accountable. Yeah. And people at the top level of, um, of the police forces who's, whole purpose in life is to be stopping these sort of things, were allowing it, facilitating it, covering it up, in some instances, allegedly taking part in it. Yeah. Um, And so this is the thing. The interesting thing is this comes back to the uh, scandal a few years ago where Scotland Yard was clearly collaborating with segments of the right-wing press to leak information. Um, And there is this... It almost seems to be a tradition of careerist policemen in Scotland Yard having untoward dealings with members of the establishment in different quarters. And this would seem to follow on from that phenomenon, um, albeit further in the past. The allegations come from what, the 1970s and 80s? Uh, 70s, 80s, up to the 2000s. Really? Up to the 2000s? I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Um, And apparently what you had was really like kind of a nightmarish scenario of powerful people, including judges, MPs, um, apparently a member of the royal family, involved in sort of having stash houses for abuse where they would like basically congregate and abuse children. Um, So it's about as bad as you could possibly imagine. It's an organised pedophile ring, except there were lots of powerful people. And it just... it. It's uh, another one of those ones, much like our first discussion, you just can't get your fucking mind around it. Like, Yeah. Wow. And what we were talking about was like, how do these things form? Like, at some juncture, people have to talk to each other and admit to each other that this is a proclivity that they have yeah. and it's something that they want to pursue together as allies. And we were saying... It, I mean, how do you sort of end yeah, up yeah. in a situation where you're talking to a guy and you both realise that you want to abuse children yeah. and that you get together and do it? How does that fucking happen? How does that happen? And so our theory is that this is like possibly an institution that's like kind of existed on the underbelly of society for hundreds of years. Yeah. And it's like there are rumours about it and people hear about it and they know where to go to kind of sort of nudge people that they're interested in that kind of activity. Yeah. Um, it's the only plausible explanation. You yeah, can't spontaneously it's... pop up in the space of a few years. Yeah. And um, I was telling Pat earlier, uh, and I think it's interesting enough to, uh, to yeah, repeat it's worth on saying, this podcast. Yeah. Um, while I was working um, uh, up at uh, Harvey Bay, a uh, little city up in Queensland where I first started working as a journalist, uh, I did a lot of court reporting. Um, and the security guard at the Harvey Bay courthouse, uh, you know, great old bloke, 
but committed conspiracy theorists. Like there wasn't a conspiracy theory going around that he wasn't on top of and, you know, believed in. Like uh, moon landing, chemtrails, um, you name it, he, he was an expert, like uh, 9-11, um, anything. And um, whenever there was a break in court, I'd just, you know, go out and, and start chatting with him because it was always interesting. Um, mm. uh, just, uh, you know, <laughs> hearing about what his latest, uh, uh, what his latest theory was. And one day, one of the ones he was, uh, he was saying to me, um, was about, uh, pedophile rings running society at the top, in the top strata of, um, uh, politics and law. Um, and, uh. And his theory was, well, I don't know if it was his theory or if he'd read it somewhere, but it was, it was the theory that he was expounding to me that day, um, uh, was that this had been going on for hundreds of fucking years, that it had been at the top level of British politics and royalty uh, and legal system and, uh, you know, like everything else had been transported to Australia with the convicts, so had this. Um, and, you know, that day I just thought, oh, that's... A particularly dark uh, conspiracy theory this guy's got today, um, but reading uh, reading this article today, I'm like Jesus Christ. It starts to sound plausible. Yeah. Um, it also starts to sound like the only explanation that this kind of uh, uh, diseased pedophile skull and bones society yeah. has existed on the kind of underbelly of society uh, for a very long period of time. Um, because this is not the kind of thing that just kind of emerges you would spontaneously think. and quickly. Yeah. I mean, this kind of cancer has to evolve over a period of time. It's such fraught activity. And the other thing that kind of wigs me out is, generally speaking, I'm not a believer in conspiracy theories because I don't have much faith in the ability of people to collude on uh, uh, dastardly activities and keep their mouths shut. Yeah. My general rule... Uh for conspiracy theories is how many people would have to keep their mouths shut for this to work. Yes. Um, and if it gets to a certain point, I'm like, yeah, more probably not true. <laughs> if it gets um, past a dozen, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's my intuitive number. If it gets past a dozen people, I can't imagine people will keep their mouths shut. Yeah. Did we have a discussion akin to this recently? Um, there was another I'm not case. sure if we had uh, a discussion or a podcast about it, but we have spoken about it in the past. But uh, we've spoken about it in the past where there was another situation where I was like, I was fucking surprised that this happened. Yeah, no, it was about the uh, uh, Frenchman and his... Uh, oh, that's right, the sex parties. Yeah, the sex right. parties. Yeah. Again, I was surprised that people could keep their mouths shut about that. Um, but, I mean, perhaps this is more plausible that people kept their mouths shut because it's so bad. Yeah. I mean, if people want to get together and have crazy orgies, I mean, it's whatever. End, yeah. You know, ultimately that's not illegal. But damaging small people is just as bad as it gets. Yeah. And, I mean, perhaps that's you can actually sustain a conspiracy at a larger number of people because of the depravity of the, the acts and the fact that everyone's got a stake in keeping their mouth shut. The Catholic Church certainly managed yeah. it for a while. Um, and what's interesting, I suppose, is that the Catholics have been sort of exposed yeah and actually it is in, like in the uh in the past uh decade or not even decade last five years um so many more uh religious institutions aside from the catholic church uh have started to be getting exposed well, well that's right we had the like case the yeah. salvation army um uh in the australian jewish community yeah um yeah. uh I, there's been some various things in Anglican Church in uh, in the UK. Right. Um, I mean, it just seems that, like, basically there is a percentage of the population that carries around in their head the affliction of being attracted to sexual acts with minors. Mm -hmm. There just seems to be a group of people who have that. And whatever strata you find, you're going to find a certain number of those people. And that in this case those people have somehow managed to, like, get together, sound each other out, agree that this is okay, and then create a system for carrying out the act. Yeah, I just think that that's got to be a long-term caper. Yeah. I can't imagine that sort of thing pops up randomly over a period of a few years um, because it's just such kind of dark 
evil stuff. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, like these guys are perhaps the powerful equivalents of the, the white trash bloke who lives in a caravan park and picks up kids on the weekend mm. to abuse them. These people have resources. I suppose at some point they come to the conclusion that by combining their resources, they can carry out their activities more safely. And they then have a power base that allows them to shut down investigations if the investigations commence. Um, which is also amazing in the sense that you can imagine that if you're a purely amoral person, you look at a situation like this and you go, wow, there are so many powerful people from so many pillars of society that are engaged in this. This is actually a bad thing for civil um, cohesion. Yeah. If people find out that twisted motherfuckers are doing well, this. Well, I mean, that was the, uh, the uh, like bad for national security. Well, that's it, this right? Out. Yeah. It's that's... like, you're fucking right. It's bad for national security. Yeah. Um, and I can't help but think of the connection with the rich New York financier who's flying, uh, allegedly flying a, a royal to his island for yeah. sex with underage girls. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but make that connection. Yeah. I mean, so in terms of the royal that's apparently embroiled in this, well, I don't know. I mean, this is the second allegation in a few months, in so many months, I think, actually, of that kind of uh, caper. You just got to start to wonder about, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, what the... F who the fuck are these people? And, like... How much influence do they have in the world collectively? My stomach's just fucking churning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It starts to really, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that many powerful people have psychopathic tendencies, which is part of the reason that yeah. they're able to become powerful because there's a certain ruthlessness involved in acquiring power. Yeah. But and you can see that in just about any pursuit of power that you care to mention from a corporation to politics to... Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And there just seems to be, though, um, in these sectors of influence, this uh, conglomeration of evil that manages to appear wherever there is uh, reverence like wherever there's this yeah. like institutional reverence, like be it politics, or judiciary, religion, religion. Yeah. royalty. Yeah, royalty for Christ's sake. Fucking sakes. royalty. <laughs> you find these sort of canker sores appearing. Yeah. Wherever people, wherever wherever there's a level where a whole bunch of people have. What's the word I'm looking for? Less accountability yeah. than usual, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you see this like the most simple sort of um, indicator of that is give someone an anonymous Twitter handle yeah. and see what they say. Like this is kind of the, the real world, like powerful men equivalent of that. Give them a kind of immunity from accountability to some extent, especially when you have careerist policemen who are interested in not putting offside powerful constituents. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I wonder if this is possible at the kind of scale that the newspapers are suggesting it's possible. And this seems to be like long running. Yeah. And I think that over the next few months, these yeah. investigations will really start to take headlines. Like, yeah, there's only a few stories around about it at the moment. Yeah, because the details are scant, yeah. but there's so much smoke that there has to be a roaring bushfire somewhere. Yeah. 17 allegations at this point over a 30-year period yeah. being investigated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it boggles the mind that it's possible. And I think the implications more broadly for how we perceive institutions... Uh, are pretty profound because I'm cynical enough. Yeah, I thought I was more <laughs> cynical. I, I thought yeah, that well, my... like whenever I, I, whenever my low opinion of human nature, <laughs> uh, humanity keeps finding a way to no, scrape below the barrel even further. The it's like I honestly, I'm still a believer in the goodness of yeah. people. I really am. No, it's like the in, institutions. Yeah. Like 
I'm never ever cynical enough about institutions. I've learned my lesson in this on this, like with the Catholic Church and the abuse, with the intelligence communities and the surveillance of the population. Yeah. And now it seems like with governmental people who I would think are sensible enough, if only through self-interest and self-preservation, sensible enough not to kind of be involved in this kind of crazy shit. But it seems like whenever there these institutions are involved, it is happening and it's worse than you think. Yeah. And it's much worse than you think. Like much worse. Like, yeah. <laughs> much, much, much worse. worse than you could possibly think. Um, just on that uh, human age thing, yes, in... Uh, in general, I agree with you. In general, I think that more or less people are good. Individuals, um, yeah. 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 But, but you put them into power structures, man, that are just not like, let's be honest. We evolved in small bands. Yeah. Like humans, I think crazy shit happens when you scale an organization past what we evolved for. Yeah. And you, and you get to the point where... Um, People don't see people as people anymore. They're yeah, just, they don't. There's too many of them to even think about them as a fellow human being. They're just a number. They're just a thing. Yeah, um, and there's also weird outcomes when you create what is essentially an, an organization is an abstraction. Yeah, but that abstraction has rules to operate that are necessary that seem to be just counter to human nature on an individual level. Yeah, I almost feel like if you just create an institution that's larger than what humans evolve. Like, let's say 20-odd people. Create, create something larger than that, and you have this weird dynamic where the normal human behaviours start to break down. And you end up in a situation where, you know, car companies decide to take the hit yeah, it's, of like uh, paying out settlements for people who die in their cars because it's more monetary. Yeah, efficient. than having a recall. Or, yeah, yeah, like you decide you're going to send an army into a Middle Eastern country for no apparent reason except that you want to export democracy because a few dudes in an influential place think that's a good idea and no yeah. one's got the balls to say, no, that's not a good idea. Oh, and your mates with uh, someone who owns an arms company. Yeah, I mean, like... This weird shit happens once you scale human activity like this. Allegedly. Dick Cheney, you fucking cunt. Yeah, well, he did run that company. There's <laughs> no doubt about that fact. <laughs> um, what other crazy shit seems to happen with institutions? Um, well, basically oh, everything. Yeah. Um, basically everything that goes wrong. <laughs> um, you know, uh, shit. Um we're not going to. We're just going to dump all this uh, uh, infant formula on uh, on Africa yeah, and uh, and kill hundreds of thousands of kids yeah. because we uh, we haven't told them they have to actually make sure the water's clean before oh. they mix it. Oil companies uh, sponsoring militias that yeah. cause wars oh, in African oh. countries, like we saw in this documentary. Is it called Virunga? Virunga, amazing documentary, incredible documentary. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well worth a look, by the way. It's almost worth doing a podcast segment on. But, yeah. um, you guys should totally... It's a Netflix documentary um, about a, a wildlife park in the Congo. Called Virunga. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like... Is there an alternate... Do we have another way to organise society so that we can still operate at scale? Yeah. But we don't operate in these monoliths that cause this crazy shit to happen. I feel like we should almost have alliances between tribes of people or something. Yeah, like just go back to small groups. Except that we form alliances Except so we're not warring small groups. Yeah. But in, a, in, in essence, you look at somewhere like Europe and that's what happened to yeah. create the society that we're in now. Like it was the slow conglomeration, I suppose, of small groups into slightly larger groups uh, and eventually they got to a point where, well, this is, this is as far as we can have our little alliance of various mm. groups. Um, this is a country. Well, this is a... And we look at the Australian and American political systems. Labor, liberal. Yeah. Utterly just fucking useless. In America, total gridlock. Yeah. Just because of dynamics from abstractions. Political parties. Just a fucking idea. Yeah. And that just grinds an entire country to a halt. 
Yeah, and that is insane to me, but it seems to make sense to well, so many people. Not only does it make sense, it seems to be implacable. Yeah, like impossible yeah. to shift. Um, uh, well, I mean, the thing is, though, interestingly, like as we see the internet distribute power mm-hmm. and certain gatekeepers um, in these scaled organizations are eliminated, the kind of crazy that happens then <laughs> is comparable. <laughs> Look at the way that a Twitter mob can yeah, just can eviscerate just, a person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm thinking of examples of that, like this Gamergate thing. I mean, I don't know much about the details. Yeah, about, I haven't that's really like, followed that at all. That's a large, you. distributed, disjointed, not particularly well-organised group of people who've just taken it upon themselves to make the lives of certain females unlivable because the females wrote articles that this large group of men disagreed with. Yeah. Um, that's my understanding. That's my general it. understanding of, like I say, I haven't followed it at all. Um, I don't know the details. But it's like, it's, I mean, do we, do we have less trouble if we distribute power? I'm not convinced I'm that not we sure, do. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there's got to be an alternative to the current centralised system. Yeah. Is there a happy median? You'd like to think so, but honestly... Um, You'd like to think so. Um, I mean, I've always been fascinated by alternate methods of governance, but I'm not at all convinced. I mean, if you look at, like, corporations are the things that get things done in this world for the most part, and they're just centrally controlled dictatorships yeah. with a commercial motive. Um, you know, try as I might, I cannot sort of get to a point where I feel like there's a more efficient executioner of human plan and endeavour than the corporation, even though, of course, they have serious problems. Um, I'd like to think that there's something in between where we can have a structure that takes into account the interests or the the opinions of the people who run it without losing the edge that it requires to, to execute plans. I'm yet to come up with the system, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I like what corporations can do but there's got to be a way to mitigate the damage that they do as well. Um, anyway, we're anyway. probably getting to the end of our... Yeah. Um, I mean, look, these are all super interesting topics. Super interesting, but super dark. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of something in the news this week that is, like, happy and positive that we could finish on an up note, but I, um, I'm feeling too down at the moment to even think of something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh. Look, I'm not sure it's fair to expect of ourselves an enthusiastic topic after those three. No. So, guys, I'm sorry. We're going to have to leave you on a fairly uh, sort of downward note. But um, how would you guys fix the problems of the world? Yeah. Email us on uh, mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Um, And uh, I suppose we'll speak to you next week, hopefully, about more. Something nicer. Yeah. Maybe. We'll 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 give it a good go. All right. See ya.